0: Remain standing and turn with me uh, this evening to the Sermon Scripture. Uh, We're continuing our observance uh, this evening of Reformation uh, Sunday and looking together at the great uh, theme and teaching uh, from Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10 that we are saved uh, by grace alone. And we come tonight then to uh, three verses, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Uh, Let us give our attention now, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, to the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. Apostle Paul uh, writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Thus far the reading of God's holy inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that we have it in our possession, in our hearts, in our mouths, on our lips, in a language we understand. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes our hearts alive and Preaches the saving word and grants faith in Christ. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your manifold grace and goodness for all you have done through Christ to save us from sin. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, I had a favorite teacher in high school Mr. Lapari senior year physics John Burroughs High School Burbank California and he was known for a number of things my children are familiar with many of them I'll mention a couple tonight he would begin the class every year in the fall by writing up on the board and requiring of us to write verbatim in our notes, uh, what is physics, comma, anyway, question mark. You had to write it uh, exactly like that in your notebook or risk getting uh, marked down with with points off. Uh, He wanted us to understand from the very beginning what it was that we were going to study, what it was that we were going to learn uh, that year. And routinely, Every Monday or so, I suppose, he would inform us that we had done uh, very poorly on Friday's quiz, that any number of us were uh, both idiots and vegetables. I don't think you can get away with that today. And then he would write something on the board, uh, what is matter, what is mass, what is force, and he would say, now, children, this is the key to the class. This is the key to the class. If you don't understand this, you will fail to understand everything the rest of the school year. And every once in a while, it's good for us, isn't it, uh, to get back to the basics, uh, to go back to the ABCs, if you will, to the fundamentals uh, of our faith and of the gospel. Uh, Our text this evening is one of the best-known Uh, passages in the Bible, uh, and rightly so, for it contains the greatest message that anyone can ever hear. It is probably one of the most widely memorized texts, uh, along with passages like John 3.16 and Psalm 23, and the text has three parts uh, that we will consider tonight. The first part tells us how it is that God saves us, that it is by grace. The second part tells us of the channel through which this grace of God comes to us. It is through faith. And the last part, which is a contrast, tells us how God does not save us. And it explains why it is not of works lest anyone should boast. So let's begin with grace, and let's begin with a story that illustrates that our salvation is by grace alone. Over a century ago, in the worst slums of London, there was a social worker whose name was Henry Morehouse. One evening as he was walking along the street, he saw a little girl Come out of a basement store, carrying a pitcher of milk. She was taking it home, but when she was a few feet from Moorehouse, she suddenly slipped and fell. Her hands relaxed, and lost their grip on the pitcher, and it fell on the sidewalk and broke. And the milk ran into the gutter, and the little girl began to cry, as if her heart would break. Henry Morehouse quickly stepped up to see if she was hurt, and he helped her to her feet, saying, Don't cry, little girl. But there was no stopping her tears. She kept on repeating, My mommy will whip me. My mommy will whip me. And he said, No, little girl, your mother won't whip you. I'll see to that. Look, the pitcher isn't broken in many pieces. And so he stooped down beside her, picked up the pieces, and began to work as if he were putting the pitcher back together. And the little girl stopped crying. She had hope. She came from a family in which pitchers had been mended before. Maybe she thought this stranger could repair the damage. And she watched as he fitted several pieces together until, working too roughly, he knocked it apart again. Once again, she began to cry, and Morehouse had to repeat, Don't cry, uh, little girl. I promise you that your mother won't whip you. Once more, they began the task of restoration, this time putting the whole picture together except for the handle. Morehouse gave it to the little girl. She tried to attach it, but naturally all she did was knock it down again into pieces. This time, there was no stopping her tears. She would not even look at the broken pieces lying on the sidewalk. So finally, Henry Morehouse picked up the little girl in his arms, uh, carried her down the street to a shop that sold pitchers and bought her a new one. And then, still carrying her, he went back to where the girl had bought the milk and had the new pitcher filled. He asked her where she lived, and when he was told he carried her to the house, Set her down on the step and placed the full pitcher of milk in her hands, and then he opened the door for her. As she stepped in, he asked one more question Now, do you think your mother will whip you? He was rewarded for his trouble by a bright smile as she said to him, Oh, no, sir, because it's a lot better pitcher than we had before. Here is an illustration of the grace of God in salvation. The Bible teaches that men and women were created in the image of God, to know him, to love him with all of our heart. But when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned by disobeying God's righteous law, that image was broken and broken beyond repair. It doesn't mean that there is no value in human nature. Broken pottery is not utterly uh, worthless. Broken bits of pottery have been found and used to date ancient civilizations. They have been used as ashtrays. They've been used even to draw pictures and works of art. But it is worthless so far as carrying milk is concerned. In the same way, human nature in its broken state is useless for pleasing God or earning heaven. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are by nature objects of wrath. We are all incapable in ourselves of any saving good. The Bible says there is no one righteous, Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Dear friend, that is all of us. Every human being, you and me, outside of Christ and apart from grace. And yet human beings have troubled consciences. They know that all is not well with their soul. And so they try to fit the broken pieces together. They try to please God by their character, by their efforts. And like Morehouse and his first attempts to help the little girl, they keep trying to put the pieces of their broken righteousness back together they cannot achieve God's perfect standard of righteousness but they see parts of their character that are good from their perspective they try to work with those they look around them at others and they uh, conclude that they are no worse than them so they trust in what they have and they trust in what they are but it's a patchwork of shards and God condemns it. But this is where the grace of Almighty God comes in. Jesus Christ came into this world, this world of sin, this world of misery, weeping in its failure and its unrighteousness. And he became the means by which an utterly hopeless situation was transformed, a situation that apart from him could never have changed. Beloved, if Jesus Christ had not come, you and I would have failed again and again and again to pick up the broken pieces of our lives and to try to clean up the mess we had made. There's nothing in the Bible to indicate that Jesus ever attempted to patch up fallen human nature. He didn't come merely to assist us or to reform us. He came to recreate us, to do what only God can do, to make us a new creation. He said we were born in sin and that we must be born again he took those who were dead in trespasses and sins and made them alive again. Instead of patching together our broken pieces, he came to give us an entirely new nature. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And to paraphrase the words of the little girl, it is a lot better than what we had before. The work of Christ in us to make us a new creation is far better than anything we could have ever done by our own efforts. It is a holy God within his people breathing new life into their dead selves making them utterly new creations with a totally new nature. And it is all of grace, God's kindness, His goodness, His unmerited favor, as verse 4 of Ephesians 2 had said, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace is the shorthand. The longhand is that you and I have been saved because God is rich in mercy. Because he has loved us with the great love with which he has loved us. I don't want you to ever forget that, beloved. God is your best, your heavenly friend, the lover of your soul, who is rich in mercy and loved you with a great love. That is his disposition toward you in Christ, and don't you ever, ever forget that. And don't try to hold back any credit for yourself. because it is all of grace. And it must be all of grace. The little girl in our story did nothing to deserve Morehouse's favor. She did not pay for the new pitcher. She did not pay for the new milk. She could not hire his services. She had nothing to hire him with. She did not even prevail upon him because of her cuteness or her misery. Morehouse did as he did solely because it pleased him to do it. He expected no reward from the girl's parents. Beloved, Jesus saves us Us who have nothing, offer him nothing, produce for him nothing, because it pleases him to do so. You know, in the Middle Ages, the faithful were led to believe that there was something they had to do to contribute to their own salvation, that there was a kind of economy to salvation. They paid something out and they got something back. But some payment had to be paid. Some pilgrimage to some holy place had to be made. Some sacrament had to be received. Some satisfaction had to be provided. But we are all miserable wretches. Everything we have is sin-stained to begin with. Even our best efforts to be reconciled to God. We have nothing by which to earn God's favor. Nothing in us to cause him to love us. He loves us because it is his nature to love. He loves us because it pleases him to do so. Thus, Jesus died for us and saved us solely because of his good pleasure, not because of anything in us or anything that ever can be in us that we are saved. But as Spurgeon said, because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy and grace of God. The old hymn writer said, the only fitness He requires, the only fitness He requires, is that we feel our need for Him. You know, I think one of the reasons it is all so hard for us to fathom this good news that seems almost too good to be true of the grace of God in Christ is that nearly every area of our lives operates on a performance basis. Work hard, get paid. Study hard, get good grades. Get high test scores, get into the college of your choice. Train hard, start on the varsity team. Surpass your colleagues in excellence at work, get the promotion. But we are not used to being treated by anyone on the basis of sheer grace. And we do not expect it from a holy God. But this is how God is. Grace is the only way to be saved. Once men and women began to hear this gospel, it set their hearts on fire Turn the world upside down again. The message of the free, unmerited, undeserved grace of God toward helpless sinners. Well, that is all well and good. God gives grace to helpless sinners. We can all agree. I cannot put the pieces of my life back together. I will admit that. I cannot meet God's standards of righteousness. If I am to be saved, salvation must come to me from God in Jesus Christ by grace. But that is still remote, abstract, outside of me. How does a salvation as great and free as that become mine personally? And the answer uh, Paul gives Is that it becomes ours through faith. And this is such an important word, we must dispense with the world's common misunderstandings of faith. One of those is that faith is something like a gut feeling, some subjective sense that I am a Christian by whatever definition the population at large chooses. Or it's something like credulity. It's the attitude of a person who will accept something as true apart from evidence simply because he or she earnestly desires it to be true. It is wishful thinking, a blind leap in the dark, a leap of faith, but not true saving faith. A third definition is optimism. Faith is a positive mental attitude uh, as a result of which uh, the thing believed is supposed to happen. This has been one of the most dangerous substitutes for the gospel and for true biblical saving faith in modern times. It's been championed by men like Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller. Faith is a positive mental attitude. It's optimism. We should only think about those things that are positive and that lift our spirits, and then our lives will eventually become like the optimism we form in our minds. That is why, uh, for example, Schuller refused to speak about sin in his preaching because he said that it made people feel bad to hear about sin and he refused to do that. He wanted to make people feel good about themselves and I can tell you that many people have probably felt quite good about themselves all the way to hell's door. Shuler was once asked rather pointedly, uh, Dr. Schuler, what do you say to those who tell you that sin is mentioned in the Bible and yet you refuse to mention it in your preaching? To which he memorably replied, just because sin is mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean that I have to preach it. But for Peel and Schuler, nothing is impossible for you If you can only imagine it, envision the world you want, the life you want, and it will become reality for you. It's really another word for self-confidence. But none of these match the true definition of biblical faith. Biblical saving faith actually has three elements. Knowledge, the response of the heart belief, and commitment. Therefore, it involves the mind, the heart, and the will. It is knowledge, belief, and trust. The first element is knowledge. There are facts of the gospel that we must know. There is content. There is data. These include that in our natural state, we are fallen, lost sinners, that we are in need of a Savior, that left to ourselves we are without hope, but that nevertheless God has reached out to save us through the work of Jesus Christ, and that it is all of grace. It is to know that God is gracious towards sinners, that he saves them through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that he will save those who call upon his name. That is knowledge, that is the content. There are facts that we must know or understand of the gospel. Second, we must believe these things in our hearts and not merely know them. Untold millions of people, beloved, are acquainted with the facts of the gospel, but they do not believe them. They've had no heart response to the gospel. And so faith also involves a response to such knowledge. John Calvin said, it now remains to pour into the heart what the mind has absorbed. For the word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain but only when it takes root in the depth of the heart. I can identify with that. I can tell you that I personally knew and understood the basic facts of the gospel for a number of years. It flitted around, I suppose, in the top of my brain before it at last took root in the depth of my heart. And it is true about many also who are raised in Christian homes. They know the data, they understand the content, they are familiar with the facts of the gospel in their minds. But it remains still to pour into the heart what the mind has absorbed. And for this, of course, we need the special illuminating grace of the Holy Spirit. The final element is commitment or trust. It means casting yourself upon Christ, resting on his promise, and accepting his finished work on your behalf. Not only that he died on the cross, that he died on the cross for sinners, but he died on the cross for you, and you trust his finished work alone and accept it as sufficient to save your soul. A long time ago, maybe you've heard the story. I'm not sure how apocryphal it is. I think it's out of the 19th century. Uh, There was a world-renowned tightrope walker Blondin, uh, who was dazzling audiences as he uh, would tightrope walk uh, back and forth over Niagara Falls. And the crowds were amazed to cheer him on. And according to the story, he came uh, to the side and and asked the crowd, how many of you believe uh, that I can do that again? And they all cheered. We know you can How many of you believe uh, I can push a wheelbarrow across this tightrope over Niagara Falls? Oh, yes, Blondin, we believe you can. How many of you believe I can push a man in that wheelbarrow successfully across Niagara Falls? Oh, yes, we know you can. How many of you would like to be that man (laughs) get in that wheelbarrow and let me push you across? And there was silence. (laughs) Knowledge. Faith in the heart. Personal trust and commitment that Jesus can do and has done for me what the gospel says he has done. There is one final idea. And that is how God does not save sinners. And it is not to be missed, beloved. Not of works, or not by works, lest anyone should boast. Now this means, of course, that faith is not a work that saves us. Faith is the channel. It is the sole instrument by which we are linked to Christ by which we are united to his saving work. But it is not itself a deserving action or attitude on our part. And again, Calvin's beautiful imagery is helpful here. Faith, he said, is like this. It is like a beggar with empty, outstretched hands, Begging for bread. Faith admits, faith accepts, and faith receives. But faith does not merit or deserve salvation. For we are saved, he says, through faith and not of works. And notice what Paul had said in verse 8 that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Notice that he will not tell us how we are saved without telling us in the same breath how we are not saved. Because that will always be a temptation in the church. It is all of God. It is all of grace and therefore, by definition, not of ourselves and not of works or human effort, but entirely of God. Even faith, something as vital as faith, is a gift from God worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and cannot be considered a work that contributes to our salvation. You know what that means, dear friend? You can take no credit, even for the faith that you have, for that too is a gift of God. Now there is a reason for all of this. It is a great reason. We often say that Christianity is an inclusive religion because it includes all people no matter what race or nationality or gender or background, who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ and calls on the name of the Lord for salvation. But Christianity is also an exclusive religion because there is something that it adamantly and unapologetically excludes, and that is boasting. All boasting in one's self is excluded from a Christian life. I am not a Christian because I did anything worthy. You are not a Christian because you did anything worthy. All boasting is removed because anyone who is ever saved is saved by grace alone apart from works. And therefore, the only suitable boasting is boasting in the grace of God and in the cross of Jesus Christ by which we are saved alone. And beloved, there is a reason God made it this way. There is a reason why we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. And it is so that all human boasting is excluded and so that God alone receives the glory. For from him and through him and unto him, Paul says, are all things, Romans 11. If our works contributed to our salvation, even in part, then you and I could congratulate ourselves for the part that we played and the contribution that we made. We would compare ourselves to others and pat ourselves on the back for doing better than those around us, for making a better decision, for exercising our will, for being more spiritual. But we would boast. Boast in self, boast in works, boast in Human effort. And you know, my observation is there's enough boasting in the Christian life, even though we are told that it is all of grace and that boasting is excluded. But God wants it this way because He is God and we are not. Salvation is all of grace, not of human effort, so that God will receive all the glory. In his church. Beloved. If you have not yet learned to give God all the glory. And to hold on to nothing of yourself. Then you have not yet fully understood grace. It is a miracle. It is unfathomable. It is quite literally almost too good. To be true. It is amazing. If you have never done so. Will you not believe. And trust. And commit yourself. To the God of all grace. Who does for sinners. What they can never do for themselves. Will you trust him. To make of you. An entirely new creation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonder and miracle of the gospel, for the miracle of grace, that we are saved by grace alone, and that it is all of your love and kindness and mercy. Fill us with joy, therefore, with overwhelming gratitude. Take away all pride and arrogance, all boasting, fill us with humility. Remind us that apart from the grace of God, we are lost and hopeless like all the rest. And the only thing that distinguishes us is that grace has been poured out into our hearts. And we will give you all the glory forever and ever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.